you should always have plans and outcomes, but when you've got a goal, the irony is you failed until you've hit that goal. So you could be doing much better every day, but until you hit the goal, you're failing theoretically. So I, I love that concept of marginal gains and measuring everything and watching the trends. That to me is much more exciting than it is to have these arbitrary goals that you set yourself. Hello and welcome to The Ascent. I'm Guy Gillen, one of the co-founders and managing partners at Tenzing. We're a private equity firm and we're passionate about the human stories in business. So in this podcast, I'm talking to some of the tech world's most inspiring founders, entrepreneurs, and CEOs to discover what drives them, what keeps them awake at night, and what they've learned along the way that can help us in our own lives too. In this episode, I talked to Rob Pierre, co-founder and CEO of Jellyfish, a global digital marketing and transformation partner to some of the world's leading brands, including Google, Samsung, Netflix, and Nike. Jellyfish has had a seriously rocket-boosted couple of years. French investment giant Fimlac bought 50% of the company for just over $700 million in late 2019, which led to a buying spree, and then the pandemic saw revenue grow exponentially, in part because any business that hadn't already made the migration to digital woke up to the fact that they had to do it, and they had to do it immediately. Now employing over 2,000 people across 40 offices globally, Jellyfish has featured in the Sunday Times Top Track 250 and Rob has been crowned Media Leader of the Year at the Media Week Awards and featured on the Powerlist 2022 as one of the 100 most powerful black Britons. He's a man brimming with thoughts and ideas and insights and there's a lot to learn from his determination to do things differently. So sit back and enjoy. I'm going to actually start off with your earliest entrepreneurial memory can you remember what that might have been I've got a couple I was born here in the UK but I actually grew up in Trinidad and a couple of these memories were when I was about nine or ten in Trinidad the first one was my mum was called into the headmaster's office <laughs> because I was actually selling fish at my primary school oh wow one of my neighbors was breeding goldfish in big concrete tanks and selling them. And I was hanging around with him, learnt how to breed goldfish. I bred them in my garden <laughs> and took them in little bags into school. And my parents were told, I can't really do that. Apparently I can't sell live animals at school. <laughs> the second one was uh, the carnival. Trinidad has one of the biggest carnivals. My grandpa in Trinidad had an office and I knew the route was going past the front of his office. So I actually asked my parents to borrow some money. I bought some ice. I got these large white buckets from a friend who had a grocery store. And I bought up front a whole bunch of soft drinks. And I knew that it would be baking hot and people would be desperate. And I could sell these drinks for whatever I wanted. Yeah. And I set up a stall in front of his office. And so apparently, I always had this... Uh, motivation to go out and earn money and make money but I was always looking for opportunities and, and trying to match the sort of the challenge or the opportunity with a solution and it's just always been the way I've thought right from a young age. Do you think entrepreneurs are born or can they be made? I think the core traits required you're born with mm. and I think if your default state is problem solving mm. if you are naturally positive and passionate and therefore contagiously so, 
I think that's what makes a successful entrepreneur. So I don't think you're born as an entrepreneur, but I think you're born with the traits that will very much lead to success as an entrepreneur. Yeah, I totally agree. And the other thing that also I think comes up is this irrational drive. So you do stuff that people think is illogical or a risky move, or you carry on running through a brick wall even though everyone's advising you to sort of give up. Is that something that you've got in yourself? Yeah, I mean, and, and in some cases, it's just this passion to pave your own path. I don't know. You know, they say Mozart could see music in colours. Mm. And the way I look at it is that I can see the outcome I'm looking for so clearly mm. that I believe it's real. And so whatever barriers and whatever challenges and how much opposition that I come against, it doesn't change the fact that I could see this outcome so clearly and I know it's possible. Mm. And so I do everything that I can to get there. To pioneer things are such a challenge. And I think part of being a really successful entrepreneur is possibly going into uncharted waters and to go to places people may not have the risk appetite to do. But if you do have that core belief and that view of what the outcome looks like, I think you're more inclined to pursue it relentlessly. Yeah. So was it a linear entrepreneurial journey from selling children's and carnivals to founding Jellyfish or what did the intermediate sort of steps look like? Were there twists and turns to get there? There were lots of twists and turns. I came back to the UK when I was 14 years old and was doing very well at school, but then I was going to go to IBM to do a computer studies degree, paid for. We didn't have a lot of money. My parents split up and I came over here with my mum. So went after this uh, computer studies degree, did not get the required grades and therefore had to take a year out. I had no plan B. And in that year out, I just went into retail. Okay. And that's where it started. And in actual fact, I ended up in Sunglass Hut in Gatwick Airport and just literally went through the ranks. But what I would say is that that was an opportunity for me to continue this sort of entrepreneurial passion. And I don't really call myself an entrepreneur because I stick to leadership within a business and I really see it through. So I'm not like one of those serial entrepreneurs that like an idea and starting a business and moving on. You know, I commit to it. So I was at Sunglass Hut for seven years in the end because I had all this autonomy I was constantly trying to figure out how do we get these stores to maximize the inventory, make the most of everybody that crosses the lease line, get more people crossing the lease line. How do we sell more expensive items to everybody? How do we sell more units per transaction? It was like gamification. Everything was cause and effect. We were trying to figure out how we could get the most out of these units. And I just really built this passion for business. It's amazing in retail, the autonomy given to young people in retail. I was going to say, yeah, see, on the prejudicial glance at working sunglasses hot, it's like a weekend job or, you know, it's something that make ends meet. But because you're effectively on your own a lot and you were curious, you basically had that opportunity almost to sort of A-B test experiences. Correct. And the thing about it is also, exactly to your point, it's normally a stopgap for Mm. people You go to retail whilst you're looking for your real job. And Mm. so persuading people to be passionate and to be committed and want to have the desired outcomes, if they're considering it a stopgap, that also, I suppose, I was sharpening the axe. I was Mm. learning how to take people on a journey and to get them to feel that they have responsibilities and accountability. So it was uh, definitely a good stepping stone for where we are today. 
And so before you moved back to the UK, did you know what you wanted to be when you were elder? Did you have a like vision for yourself? No idea. I enjoyed creativity and art, but I also really enjoyed computing and problem solving and mathematical challenges. So I never knew what I would end up doing to exploit that trait. And were you like a leader within your family? That's interesting. I'm a clinical extrovert. Right. So I think one of the things is that I would go and I would go in the middle of the room and I get energy off other people. Yeah. I get inspired by everybody and everything, but it's normally through conversing with people. Yeah. And I think that leads you to engage, Mm. to build relationships to ask questions, to be curious, and to really get people to warm to you. And when you're interested in people Mm. and what they're doing and what motivates them and why they're doing things, and you show an interest in somebody, they instantly give you so much more. Mm. And you learn so much. And again, it's just traits. I wouldn't say I was a leader, but I was exhibiting the traits that would lead me on the path that I am today. I often think there's things that happen to you as a child that form your inner drive you've got an element of embed kind of like skill set that you're born with but compounded with some life experiences that sort of push you through to certain drives yeah so I wondered if there was anything in there well I think that it was a pivotal moment when I didn't get the grade because when I spoke about that IBM opportunity I went down to Portsmouth to the HQ mm. and it was a two-day full-on assessment with aptitude tests, lateral thinking, role-playing, interviews, and it was really intense. And I got through. I actually made it through the assessment and then didn't get the required grades. And so I really had to dust myself off and think, oof, okay, it wasn't meant to be. What next? And I think that was a pivotal moment. We've had a few intense and tragic experiences within our family as well, which I think makes you realize I'm I'm very philosophical in some ways Mm. I really believe in the formula happiness is reality minus expectation okay yeah that's quite interesting and you know my expectation is that life is random yeah okay life is going to throw things it's not your fault it's not karma I'm not very religious I'm very pragmatic things happen it's how do you deal with it and if you expect it to be perfect you're going to be permanently disappointed events have given you this life outlook which actually builds resilience because you expect the unexpected. Correct. So things change in a second and it's all about making sure that you believe that it's not fate, it's not meant to be, it's happened and it's not going to be a smooth ride. Mm. It's going to be a bumpy path and there's sometimes you've got to go down into uncharted waters and try something new but this cliche that you've got to learn fast and Mm. keep pivoting But it is true. It's absolutely true. You've got to keep taking the data, understanding the information, exploiting all of the people Mm. and the technology and the innovations and the experience all around you and use that to constantly make as many informed decisions as you can. And I also say to everybody, please afford me the ability to make current decisions. The other Mm. thing that I think is the ball and chain that most business people have or businesses in general is that you feel that once you've made a commitment or you've said you're going to go in a certain direction, that if you change your mind, that you're perceived to be weak or inconsistent or unpredictable. But ultimately, you are just using the information you have at any one time to make the best informed decision. And if that's your default state, then people accept that and understand it. 
and are more likely to go on that journey with you. Did you have a mentor when you were growing up? Like I said, it's everybody. Yeah. And how we've set up our business is that no one has a line manager, but we do have mentors. We have a support network. Oh, interesting. So yeah. every individual owns their career like a hobby. Like when I play golf, for example, who's responsible for me getting better at golf? No one. How mm. can I measure it? Yeah, I've got my handicap. I can yeah. play lower rounds, better shots. But ultimately, I read books. I watch YouTube videos. I've got a PGA coach. I practice. I play yeah. with people better than me. It's all down to me. Yeah. This notion that within the work environment, your career is in somebody else's hand, yeah. I don't agree with. Okay. So yeah, it's all about taking full ownership yourself. And it, I think it makes a big difference. So that people, as they move up a career, they become head of department suddenly overnight they're expected to be kind of like a parental figure to everyone within but they're head of department and you hit the nail on the head because parental i mean we've all been there at what mm. point did you suddenly ask your parents who's been your guardian your guide your mentor giving you advice on everything in life and then suddenly you get to a certain age and you ask them a question and they give you an answer and you go oh you don't know what you're talking about <laughs> do you you've just blagged your way through yeah. that answer and it's the whole dunning-kruger thing where you're more confident about a subject the less that you know <laughs> And I think that happens a lot in business and in organisations. So why not distribute that accountability? We want to make sure everybody in the organisation gets support for the things they need to do, but it's not this one parenting figure. Yeah, I certainly remember like three or four times in my career when I really aspired to be my boss, for want of a better phrase, and then you actually close the gap and you're close, and then you sort of peer over the fence and you go, that's not that special. Right. <laughs> And also, I think in that scenario, sometimes that's where the hierarchy system doesn't work because you do have to displace your boss to progress. Whereas, yeah. again, the way we're set up, there are no heads of. We work in steering groups, so we've got that distributed accountability. It gives yeah. exposure to underrepresented groups as well because one of the big things out there is this tokenism that you know you've got to employ either females or underrepresented ethnic groups etc mm. and when you do employ these people or put them in these positions and they've never had exposure in the past mm. then you're setting up for failure so mm. what we're doing is distributing the accountability giving everybody the opportunity to take accountability for certain initiatives then they've got the exposure they're involved and they're progressing at a rate which sets everyone up for success what we say to everybody is that you've just got to add more value or be better than yourself yesterday right Okay. Not anyone else. Yeah. You're not fighting for one position at the top of the hierarchy. Yeah. You're just improving yourself and you will be remunerated fairly as you add more value. And so if there's somebody really good, you're no longer competing with them. You think you're my ticket to making me better than myself. Yeah. So it's an environment of sharing and helping and nurturing. And I think that's been a big success factor. I love listening to that because even in our own organisation, it's something... Well, everyone's organisation is wrestling with this, but it's really pure of thought. So now go back and fill the dots there. You go from Oakley or Ray-Ban, you know, point of sale, end of line, special offer to, to that. So um, there was the European MD who was previously the finance director, but I ended up being the sales and operations director for Europe. Mm. So I was basically the second to the MD who was very finance driven. So pretty much went right through the ranks. And you would have been, what, late 20s by this stage, really? Yeah. So out of sunglasses, what did you love most and what was 
equally most frustrating about your time there? There was no frustration. In actual fact, I look back and I think, wow, when your passion levels are that high, Sunglass Hut was my world. Yeah. And, you know, everybody should be wearing sunglasses <laughs> and think about the UV protection and you should all have two or three pairs. And, you know, what those little 300 square foot stores did was mm. all that mattered to me. And I realised how much I was in that world. And in the zone. Only when you're out of it, you realise that there's so much more. And mm. a lot of what I learned and what I did was applicable and transferable to so many other scenarios. Mm. I look back at that entire time extremely fondly mm. because I was fulfilling a passion. Yeah. It's nurturing a passion, not climbing a ladder. What was the trigger to you leaving? I worked for an entrepreneur down in Southampton and he had a chain of mobile phone accessory stores and he was the third biggest motorcycle accessory distributor and he also manufactured and distributed mobile phone accessories. And so I worked with him for three years and really learned the sort of cutting edge of business. Okay. Yeah. He always said to me he was a self-confessed market trader at heart, you know, he, and he was always doing things on the sharp end, but he was a multimillionaire and very successful business person. And so I kind of learned the corporate sunglass hut way. Then I learned the, the edgy wheeler dealer, uh, wheeler dealer entrepreneur yeah. style of doing business. And then I had both sides of the spectrum. I'm now about 30 years old. You're going on stag do's and weddings. Yeah. And, you know, you start to hang out for weekends with people that aren't in your core group of friends. Yeah. And I keep bumping into this guy. He's got an IT consultancy called Avondale IT. His name's Paul Walsh. And we're chatting away and constantly talking. And he's talking about this opportunity in digital marketing. He's very technical, but very commercial. He, again, has a sort of unique combination. And we're chatting, chatting. And in the end, on one of those trips, I'm like sitting going, okay, I'm going to quit. And I'm going to come and join you. And let's pursue this opportunity. And so he knew I had this sort of account management, sales, marketing, yeah. people, business management side. He had the technical knowledge and he already had this established boutique IT consultancy. And we got together in 2005. And what was the um, attraction to working with Paul? Clearly he's like a super impressive individual, but what, did he just have a burning desire to strike out on your own? Yeah, it was an opportunity and I had a chance of applying everything I've learned and setting up something that you had the full autonomy and the ability to do it and take ownership of it. And it was starting with a base. I mean, I think we consolidated down to about six people when I joined him, um, mm. but it was more than enough of a foundation to do yeah. what we were aspiring to do. And um, he knew that he would like a partner on the journey to really exploit this opportunity. So that was the attraction. And we hit the ground running. It didn't take long to start gaining that traction and making way with Jellyfish. That co-founder journey is really interesting. So were you obviously compatible in terms of skill sets and how did you divide up the kind of responsibility? Yeah, so in the end, because he was the MD, obviously he owned mm. the IT consultancy at the time, mm. but it became pretty apparent that I would be taking that sort of front lead role as the MD. Yeah. But also he was really driving the technological innovation, etc. Yeah. The Venn diagram crossed over quite a bit. And when you've got two very strong personalities say, running yeah. a business, but there were clear, distinguishable skill set. Mm. And how we worked is that we made a promise to each other that we would compromise. We would have like compromise tokens. And so mm. the best way to describe it is that if we were thinking of a direction to go and we didn't agree on that direction, you had to really feel passionate about it. 
because basically there might come another time where you really have a very strong view and a passion for the direction of travel and you would want the other person to compromise. So we kind of said, okay, I'm going to take a compromise token. We'll do it your way. That was the easy bit. So we came to this agreement. The hard bit was that when you did take a compromise token, you can never say I told you so. Right, okay. So whatever at that point you wholeheartedly support that direction of travel and you go for it. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But, you know, you can't live in a parallel universe and say, if we did it my way, it would have been better. You just move on. And so we ended up doing that. And we're best of friends today. I mean, he hasn't been involved in Jellyfish for maybe 12 or 13 years now because we spun out another technology business, which he Mm -hmm. ran and I ran Jellyfish. And so... We've both got shareholding in both of these businesses. And so it's been a, a very long-term and very fruitful partnership yeah. ever since that beginning. And did you have something written down back when you started, when there were six of you? Was there even a fact packet? Was, or was it just, this is a really exciting journey, let's just discover as we go? Correct. I use the analogy because my daughter, we started early 2005, and my daughter, my first child, was born in October 2005. Oh, wow. And it's a bit like... How do I, I didn't have a plan. (laughs) My 16-year-old daughter now, I mean, she's incredible. And she's, you know, she could be anything. And every day you reimagine what she's capable of doing. So it's a similar thing with the business. No way did I know what we were going to be. But I did think every single day you assess where you are and reimagine what's possible. And every time, every day goes by, you're one person more or you've got a new skill set, you've won one client or you've opened up a new office in a new region and it's just that momentum just kept going. It's that innate curiosity. It's funny, some founders, entrepreneurs are very like goal-orientated, want to get to this, want to get to that. And others are just like permanently opening the Pandora's box. Exactly. And I think one of the problems I find with specific goals, you should always have plans and outcomes. But when you've got a goal, the irony is you failed until you've hit that goal. So you could be doing much better every day. Yeah. But until you hit the goal, you're failing theoretically. So I, I love that concept of marginal gains and mm. measuring everything and watching the trends and constantly trying to trend in the right direction across everything you do. That to me is much more exciting to track trends than it is to have these, yeah. what could often be arbitrary goals that you, yeah. that you set yourself. So in 05, what was the offering? 2005, well, we triple niched ourselves. We made sure that we concentrated and we wanted to be the best somehow. So we were literally the number one paid search, performance-based agency in the publishing sector. We were so niche that we could be the best. We started with the law of niche and then started to diversify, whether that was regions, verticals, products and services. We slowly diversified after we could legitimately say we were the number one at what we were doing. So everybody was going to internet world and ad tech. We were Mm. going to the Periodical Publishers Association with Mm. a big stand saying, we'll build you a website, we'll do all the marketing, you just tell us what you want to pay for a subscriber and we will generate subscribers for you. Oh, wow, okay. That's how we started. I always um, say to people, you've got to be in it for opportunities to present yourself. Don't Mm. spend all your time creating an elaborate plan Get on and do something. And mm. only when you're in it, opportunities present itself. Funnily enough, one of our biggest clients was Witch. Okay. And so generating all the keywords around reviews for different products, etc. And then the person who was the maternity cover 
for which he then moved to Skype mm. and he loved the work that we did for which and just because it wasn't publishing anymore but he said come and pitch we came in and pitched and we won Skype oh wow and then that was our first and it was a huge I mean we had a team of like 20 people all speaking the different languages running the campaign globally it was an amazing next step for us and a whole new vertical and uh, and that's how we started to expand. Yeah, and was that when Skype was privately owned, or was it Microsoft? It was. It was put. It was yeah. pre eBay and pre Microsoft. So it's uh, Nicholas Sandstrom. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And then your relationship with Google. Some people have really struggled with that, but you seem to have thrived. How did that evolve? Well, this is again advice that I would give to anyone: is that trying to build your own brands equity, particularly in the B two B service industry, is very difficult. You know, there are so many established players. What mm. worked for us is we treated Google like our best customer. Right. Okay. And that was the secret because we knew where we fit in the ecosystem. It was the advertisers and Google that really were the relationship. Where we fit is that we're in that ecosystem, mm. but we've got to provide value and sort of mediate between those two relationships and actually provide the best service and get the best return on investment for our clients. But... By understanding the stakeholders, strategically what Google were trying to achieve, what markets were important to them, which certifications we should get, how to become brilliant at facilitating work on Google platforms and using their technologies, that's what we did. Mm. So we just found out all that's important to them, made sure we delivered an exemplary level of service and quality of delivery, and then we became synonymous with delivering great results using Google. Mm. And the more Google heard about that and got positive reviews and feedback from the engagements with Jellyfish, the more they wanted us to be involved. And we were walking hand in hand with Google to large brands because we were by proxy leveraging their brand equity. Yeah. Most people were treating Google like a vendor and we were sending them Christmas hampers wow. and, and okay. literally treating them like our best client. That's really interesting. And a bit would have happened over a period of time, wouldn't it? Or when yeah. did you go, we've got this? It did happen over a period of time, but it was the pivotal moment where mm. we established that partnership. Because now, obviously, there's the big wall garden environments, there's Amazon, yeah. there's Facebook, etc., and emulating that partnership. But we learned a lot and they were some real pivotal people. I mean, I established a relationship with a guy called Matt Bush and he's progressed really well within Jellyfish and we kind of did it together. Mm. So we were proving what partnerships could achieve and he was progressing and, and as he had more responsibility and influence, we were growing with that. And then the network became wider and then globally, mm. I was speaking to more and more senior people and because we had all of the different certifications and accreditations from Google, we were really on the radar. Yeah. And then building up the second tier of management team behind yourself and people that are now your most key senior management people, they've been with you a long time, have they? Or how have you groomed them through? Yeah, I mean, I, I call them my global advisory group. Yeah. I mean, literally, we've been going for 16, 17 years. Most of them have been with us somewhere between 10 and 15 years. Wow, okay. We haven't lost any of the core senior people but again because we don't have this sort of hierarchy so then I don't really they're not like our management mm. they're basically are in support networks they're in my support network and they've all been going on the full journey with us digital is like dog years a year in digital is like seven <laughs> years in in any other business so like for 50 years you get your gold Rolex yeah. in some companies we said after 10 years at Jellyfish we'll get you a Rolex 
Yeah. I mean, it's a line item on our P&L now. Yeah, yeah. It's, like, it's like, we're like, whose, whose idea was that? Exactly. Um, yeah, we've got incredibly good retention yeah. and everybody's very excited and motivated to go on this journey. And then so in 2019, Fermilac came along. What was the shape of Jellyfish in 2019? So we had about 780 people. Wow. Probably about 80 million in revenue and 26 global offices, all organically grown. Amazing. So no investment, maybe a little bit of an overdraft from Barclays to help us on our way, but it was constantly pumping back in, making no profit, just about staying in a situation where the balance sheet can sustain the growth. And then the whole opportunity came to us. We still weren't ready for sale, but the stakes were getting so high and, you know, any gap between payment terms of these large companies. Yeah. I mean, it's really tricky to run yeah. an organization of that scale sure. without having the right backing and investment. So, yeah, the Fimilac opportunity came to us. Mm. He's a French billionaire, real success track record. And they came in and basically bought half of Jellyfish at that point. Mm. We put in some more entities that he had within his portfolio yeah. and created the new jellyfish at that point and um yeah we haven't looked back since so it was an unsolicited approach he hadn't formally gone out looking for you know a trade investor um or private equity no yeah i mean in some ways the market tells you the ecosystem tells you when you're ready Mm. and you're in the strongest position when you got your head down and you're building something worth buying yeah instead of looking out, you know, because mm. there are these pivotal moments. We broke through two or three of the glass ceilings that you would normally be looking for investment. You know, it's mm. like, it's that point when you need yeah, a yeah. finance team of five people, an HR team, you know, most businesses sell at exactly that point where the entrepreneur or the owner's doing most of the roles. Losing the grip, yeah. And then they have to invest in this new layer and it wipes out all your profits. So what you do yeah. is you look at the profit, you sell, And then it's somebody else's problem to do the investment to get to the next stage. Mm. We did all of that. So them coming to us from a negotiation standpoint, from a fit, choosing the right partners, etc., it just puts you in a really strong position. Other than the sort of financial firepower that they bought, they had some other assets that were complementary? Correct. And so then everything got wrapped into Correct. Because I think that's what they were looking for. They were looking for the wrapper. Right. They were looking for a global company that has the reputation and the solution that can house them because they bought these really great assets but never really brought them together mm. and we genuinely run one organization one p l yeah. you know the clients are our profit centers our products portfolios on one axis clients mm. on another and we run a global organization that's fully integrated there's no mm. separate entities with earnouts and different agendas every single person is just delivering a portfolio of solutions and products to a portfolio of global clients. That's it. Wow. And see the trade-off between sort of keeping independence, being part of a larger conglomerate, how's that gone? It's challenging because you just got to remind yourself that you're no longer on that journey where you're fully accountable and Mm. possibly your ambition and risk appetite Mm. is slightly different as an entrepreneur owner as it is to an investor. Mm. So even me now, now, you know, I haven't, Trust me, I haven't promoted myself to an investor yet, but, uh, you know, I have got a few opportunities that I look at. And I suddenly realize that if you're not fully in control, I go back to that. If you aren't the one with the very clear picture on the outcome and the unequivocal belief you're going to get there, it's very scary. And I think 
it's scary to our investors, even though Mark Ledre de la Cherie took Fitch ratings from a million to eight billion. You know, he's, he's a multi-billionaire. Yeah. But he's 80 years old, he's a multi-billionaire and an incredible track record. But when you're not fully in control, yeah. I think you just you want these measures and you, want to, you just want to make sure that your money is looked after yeah. in the best way. No one drives it off the edge of a cliff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. so that's probably the only thing yeah. that is a compromise. Other than that, it's fantastic. It's fantastic to have a billionaire big brother that's uh, helping you on your way. It's fantastic to have the ability to exploit opportunities when they present themselves. And um, probably we're slightly off the throttle a little bit, yeah. but that's probably not a bad thing. Yeah, yeah, catching your breath. Two and a half years later from their investment, what does the group look like now? Yeah, so we're approximately 2,300 people. Wow. We're going to be approaching a couple of hundred million in revenue, 40 global offices. You've been going for, what, 17 years. If you look back, what do you wish you'd known earlier? <laughs> you know, if you'd learned that 10 years earlier, that would have really helped. You know what's weird about that question is that you're never in the situation to utilise it anyway. Because yeah. what you're learning is based on the environment and the circumstances. The one thing that I've said, and I've said this historically, is that one thing I would always tell my former self is don't listen to criticism from people you wouldn't seek advice. Mm, that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. That is the one thing. Yeah. Because often I've fallen into the trap of running the business to the negative minority Mm. anomalies yeah for example you've got 2150 people mm. who are making the organization thrive yeah. but then the loudest ones are the 150 people that are disengaged yeah. who are critical about what you're doing and then you start changing things to accommodate 150 people when you've got yeah. 2150 people who are actually the reason why you're successful and what you're doing yeah. it's not for everyone we're doing things in a particular way and you've got to have the passion and uh, want to be on that journey you need to be aligned it's not a jail sentence you know when you join jellyfish you know it's just like <laughs> you're free to go but don't stick around and be disruptive either add value and help us pivot in the right direction and give tangible evidence for what you're asking for and help us mm. but certainly don't stick around and then be a detractor no. it would be the same with investors and um what about your personal ambitions now rob where, where are they um Two, make a difference to the way organisations can be run. Mm. And so my motivation is to use the foundation that we've got with Jellyfish to ensure that there's an enormous number of people that can be very proud and fulfilled on the business that they helped create and run which was going to create opportunities for families all over the world and for individuals to unlock their potential and to try and run an organization that you could still be nice mm. you could be transparent you could be honest you can be compassionate and still be commercial and try and demonstrate that there is still a balance that could be had yeah a super interesting way to articulate it so is there a favorite book that you'd recommend and anything that's kind of helped really inform this way of thinking i think because of the people approach and the distributed accountability and and the fact that i love the people that i work with and i feel there's so much trust and camaraderie and and it's all of us against the problem that type of attitude i think the five dysfunctions of a team patrick lencioni yeah fantastic and then possibly outliers by malcolm gladwell mm, yeah. it's often the what 
mm. and uh, the how you could button down yeah. the when. Yeah. We go back to the ecosystem takes care of itself. The when is often underestimated. And when you look at all those outliers and you look at the circumstances and just it was their moment, mm. things matched. They were either had access to a computer that other people didn't, they were in the right school, they spoke to the right person, but it's often the when. Yeah. And I really learned that from outliers. But to be honest, I'm terrible. I, I can't read. You know, <laughs> I have real problems getting through a book. I, I get halfway through a page and my mind has drifted. Low attention span. Yeah. Low attention span. It's yeah. debilitating. So I, I actually use Blinkist, you know, the app I do. Yeah, that, yeah. Yeah, that consolidates... Yeah. books into 10 minutes or 15 minutes yeah. so you get the key points so uh, yeah I would say that's normally how I get my wisdom I'm certainly good at buying books <laughs> <laughs> exactly and, and is there somebody that's the most standout inspiring person to you Nelson Mandela and after him no one it's everybody I yeah. talk to and meet etc yeah but Nelson Mandela from a man and a leader and who is able to to not let the pendulum swing the complete mm. opposite way to motivate and to lead a nation who mm. have been so oppressed for such a period of yeah. time to get them to do the right thing. I mean, and it, nothing's perfect. I know there's so much going on, but yeah, yeah. his words of wisdom, yeah. his character, his leadership, he is always going to be a, a huge inspiration for me. Yeah. And then um, favourite aspects about being an entrepreneur? Problem solving. Yeah. I go back to that gamification. Yeah. It's like you know, cause and effect. It's about looking at an opportunity or looking at a problem that needs solving or mm. exploiting and finding test, analyze, refine and, and just cause and effect. And just it's just like gamification. And mm. that's the best thing about it. And your advice to a budding entrepreneur? Believe in the picture that you paint in your head. If you don't have a clear picture on the outcome that you're looking for, you're not going to be successful. Mm. So you see, it slightly conflicts with goals, mm. but it's not about goals. But with the outcome, yeah. what you're trying, if you do not have a clear picture and you cannot persuade a group of people to go on that journey and to paint that picture and to get everyone excited about the outcome, then don't do it. Don't go out on your own and try and do it if you haven't got that clear picture. Rob, you've been an absolute pleasure to speak to. Really love your energy and it's super infectious. So thank you very much. Thank you. Very kind. Very much enjoyed it. There are two distinct areas that struck me from my chat with Rob. I was really taken by how he's grown his business so materially over such a long period of time, but mostly how he grew the people side of his business. The analogy of taking control of your own golf game is useful. You should first be passionate about where you work. And if you want to get better and get more out of your career, it's up to you to demand and access that. What Rob does is provide the corporate equivalent of the coach, driving range, physio and teammates to take your game to the next level. Rob rightly identifies that seniority doesn't directly lead to being better people managers or career coaches. Despite high levels of sustained growth over a very material time, no matter how much I probed, Rob wasn't explicitly or implicitly goal-orientated. Why set goals or expectations that you may miss and become failures? Rob says happiness is reality minus expectation. His expectation is that life is random. Things happen, it's how you deal with it. Rob briefly talked about the tragic events that happened to him and his family when he was young, and I think this has led him to developing an admirable sense of fatalism. Once we come to terms with a fatalistic outlook on life, we have a more variable view on the expectations of what might happen to us. 
that gives Rob this very fresh and strong long-term outlook that is resilient and enduring and results in an increasing happiness from his life's work. If you enjoyed listening to that conversation and want to hear more inspiring stories, you can search Tenzing on any of your usual podcast platforms. We'd love you to rate and review this episode and please don't forget to subscribe so you'll be the first with access to future episodes. You can find out more on tenzing.pe, on Twitter, LinkedIn or on Instagram. Bye for now.